Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. And this is it. This is episode 31, and it will be my last episode of this podcast series. I don't know if I'll start another podcast at some point. I don't know if I'll do another recovery podcast or maybe more of like a personal journey style of podcast, since that's what this kind of morphed into. I'm not really sure. Um, what I know, what I what I for sure know, and have expressed in the last couple episodes while I've talked about this is I feel comfortable and confident with how I'm leaving things. I feel like I successfully set out and completed what I set out to do. I made the decision to start a podcast about recovery. I made a decision to start one about being an atheist in Alcoholics Anonymous in the hopes that others would be able to at least digest and read the literature just to be able to formulate their own opinion on it. And to hopefully get something from it, because there is stuff there. Uh, And then what happened is I I was also kind of cataloging my growth in the program as I move away from it. And cataloging my growth as a human as I continue to practice what I have learned from the program in my day-to-day life. And I can honestly say that this has been a great experience for me. I'm ending on a, a high note. I'm ending on a positive and I'm ending having completed what I set out to do. And I, I know that I've played around with the idea of having guests on, on finishing other literature, of trying to discover other things that I could talk about and share. And it's just not something that I wish to pursue any longer. I'm in a good place mentally. I'm in a great place mentally. I am secure in my recovery. I am secure in the direction that my life is going um even though it's you know it's going at a slow pace it's actually going forward for once and it's been going forward for a while i'm secure in the kind of person that i want to be i'm secure in the growth i've made i am happy with what i've accomplished here and i'm happy with what it's done for others and how it's helped others i i feel good about this and I hope others feel okay with it too. I know there's some folks that really have enjoyed this and I and I assume that, you know, they hope that it would continue. I am sorry that it's not going to. I really am in that sense. Like I'm sorry that this is something that people might feel that they need to continue to listen to and it's ending and I know how that goes. I know, you know, I've had things end that I've really enjoyed. But I feel like I've done all I can here, and I feel like the kind of change that needs to happen needs to happen off mic before I can make the decision on what I might want to do next. But that change is, it's taken place. You know, I've gotten back in the gym. I've been consistent with that. I am getting back into reading. I'm being um, a little healthier in my decision making. I'm being healthier in my, my, my spending. You know, I want to get a place that I own, and so that's become the goal. Uh, and that's become my focus. So that, you know, that's the next chapter in my life. And then we'll kind of decide what happens after that. For right now, you know, there's not really been a lot of change happening for me. I haven't really had a lot of events. You know, the, the events I've had, I've shared. 
this last week has been fine. It's been a good week. You know, it's nothing major has happened. Nothing terrible has happened. I've continued to grow at work. I really enjoy my new job. Um, not from a like it's new kind of aspect, but I really enjoy the work that I'm doing. Like it's easy for my brain to wrap wrap itself around. The concepts are easy. There is nothing there that will happen that I can't find an answer to. And I really enjoy that. I don't feel like I'm completely outside of my depth. I feel like I'm appreciated for the work that I do and I'm noticed for the work that I do. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy all of that. You know, the health insurance is going to be fucking phenomenal. And I really hope that's going to help me get into um, a good ADHD medication. That's still the next kind of phase for now. I've been working on using uh, supplementation, some good supplements that are supposed to help with that. Some memory booster type stuff, not like, you know, woo woo froofy shit, I guess, if that's like how folks might want to want to view that. Um, there is some supplements that are medically proven to help with, um, stabilizing your memory or at least in increasing it in some, some capacity, helping to kind of protect the cells from memory degradation, degradation. I think that's the word. Ashwagandha is medically proven to help uh, with mood, a lot of other stuff, uh, turmeric, you know, stuff that's had medical backing. I'm, I'm introducing that into my diet, lion's bane, mushrooms, you know, things that have strong science behind it. And since I've been doing that, my brain fog has completely been lifted. I had been struggling with that for shit since November, probably even a little bit before that, but definitely since November. And it's basically completely gone. My focus is getting a lot better. My memory is getting a lot better. I'm able to kind of maintain a consistent energy level without feeling manic or without being like hopped up on caffeine. I rarely drink anything with caffeine in it anymore. Um, I feel healthier. You know, I don't have like uh, just random aches and pains. Um, some of that's coming from working out and being active. Some of that's just coming from having healthier intake and all that's increased my, my stable mood. I've just had consistently good experiences lately nothing out of the ordinary even stuff that's come up has just really kind of left me like okay this is fine like this is okay um i have normal periods of sadness i have normal periods of happiness i have normal periods of just being me and that was ultimately what i was hoping that i would come across with this journey you know starting this podcast was that i would end this feeling like i had made real progress in things that maybe I struggled with or things that were stabilizing and with just my life, you know, I was hoping that I would see real growth. And I'm sure that if I listen to the first few episodes of this again, which I plan to do, that I would hear that versus how this episode's going or the one before it. I just realized that my mic may not have been pointing the best direction. So I hope the quality isn't terrible. I see that some of it's a little quiet. Um, hopefully it's not too bad. I can't I can't boost it too much or it gets really distorted. So I'm gonna try to refrain from that. But moving forward it should it should be better. Sorry about the I I don't think I want to record re-record that huge section. So I'm just gonna have to kind of struggle with it being a little quiet. I have been kind of pushing off getting this this episode started. But at the same time, I'm looking forward to not having this be a stressor in my life. And I know that sounds very selfish. Me starting this podcast was selfish. <laughs> so I guess, you know, that's just par for the course. You know, these things take three or four hours a week and that doesn't seem like a lot, but you know, you add the full-time job and all the other things that I do. It's, it is a lot for me to, to 
add on top of everything else. While I don't know if I'm going to utilize that time in a different way, I do want to actually try to actively get back into my artwork again. So that I guess will be the trade-off. We'll see if I follow through with that. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but you know, overall to recap, when I came into this, I felt that Alcoholics Anonymous was a, a solution for my recovery. Uh, the, the solution that I was going to continue to choose, then I was going to supplement other recovery programs in with that. I felt that AA offered me the best way of staying sober. And as I leave this podcast, I feel that Alcoholics Anonymous was a pathway to something better for me. And I'm still kind of sussing out exactly what that looks like. But the primary example laid bare in the program and that I've sort of learned from other sources uh, is something that as I continue to practice, I continue to grow uh, despite not going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and not really participating in the program the way that I used to. And I'm okay with that. Uh, I still strongly believe that a lot of the program is very archaic. A lot of the program is very set up to be sort of surrounding this concept of shame and guilt and, you know, almost culty. Like, I mean, I, I, the parts that are bad for me that I just do not agree with are seemingly culty. The ones that, you know, you can only get recovery from this. You can never, um, alter this program or you'll, you'll go out and you'll die. You'll drink yourself to death and you'll harm others. And that just hasn't been true. It just hasn't been the case. You know, the idea that even me saying this, there might be people that are listening that are feeling that I'm on my way to relapse because I am not choosing this program. That's very culty to me. It's very unhealthy, you know, and the, and the, the rhetoric usually is, well, it's dangerous to think otherwise, which was, I mean, that's kind of how a lot of religious cults kind of operate that with the idea that if you think another way, if you get, if you doubt this, if you, if you question this, then you're going to die you're going to harm other people on the way. And I can't get behind that anymore. And while I would never tell anybody what they should do with the recovery, and I'm not going to judge people who choose Alcoholics Anonymous because there are there are enough parts of this that are healthy that people that participate in the program don't necessarily doesn't that doesn't mean that they're in a cult. That doesn't mean that they are of those that are judgmental. Um, and it doesn't mean that they are brainwashed or anything like that. It's just that they found what works for them. Um, my part is that as long as they are open and welcome and and accepting of people that have also chosen a different path of recovery. We're all in the same umbrella of recovery. We're all trying to stay sober. We're all trying to do better in our lives. That's the point. That's the purpose. It shouldn't matter what brand of that we take in. And that's where I am leaving things. So we're going to finish up this, this podcast with uh, Step 12, Tradition 12, which is like kind of the meat of the whole thing being available to people that are still struggling and hopefully guiding them towards something that can be helpful. I very may well help people make their way to AA. There's no reason why I wouldn't because I still feel like that this program does have a lot to offer people. I just will also let them know to not take everything as seriously as others might tell them to, to, to sort of make their own judgment and be capable in understanding that if they don't agree with something that that doesn't mean they're going to fucking die or drink themselves to death or they're going to cause harm to others. Um, with that being said, let's get into the Daily Stoic. February 15th, only bad dreams. 
clear your mind and get a hold on yourself, and, as when awakened from sleep and realizing it was only a bad dream upsetting you, wake up and see that what's there is just like those dreams. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 631. The author Raymond Chandler was describing most of us when he wrote a letter to his, his publisher. I never looked back, although I had many uneasy periods looking forward. Thomas Jefferson once joked in a letter to John Adams, How much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened? And Seneca would put it best, There is nothing so certain in our fears that's not yet more certain in the fact that most of us, most of what we dread comes to nothing. Many of the things that upset us, the Stoics believed, are a product of the imagination, not reality. Like dreams, they are vivid and realistic at the time, but preposterous once we come out of it. In a dream, we never stop to think and say, does this make any sense? No, we go along with it. The same goes with our flights of anger or fear or other extreme emotions. Getting upset is like continuing the dream while you're awake. The thing that provoked you wasn't real, but your reaction was. And so from the fake comes real consequences, which is why you need to wake up right now instead of creating a nightmare. Yeah, this kind of thinking is really powerful for me. I mean, so much of my life was and still in some ways kind of made up with like the dread of what may come. Not saying that I live in that dread anymore. I don't really live in a lot of stress right now. I haven't for a while. But there are a lot of things that I don't do just based on what I imagine might happen. And my art was some of that, for sure. And I was just having this conversation with my coworker. You know, I showed him a picture of some of my coffee stuff. And he's like, that's fucking phenomenal. Why aren't you doing that? And for me, these coffee paintings have turned into kind of like that touchdown throw the high school football player talks about well past his prime. You know, I, I need to actually create. If I'm going to rest on this talent that I used to talk about, I need to actually create. But what I was describing to him is what really happens in my head. I go so far outside of the creation that I stop myself from even creating. That's like the, the type of perfectionism that I have. I have a perfectionism of, of exploding whatever it is I'm about to do into such a convoluted version of it that I just never even get started. I look at my coffee work and my artwork and I think, you know, I can't make money with this or I can't sell these things because they're, you know, they're just co copies of something that uh, a picture that somebody already took and I don't have copyrights to that. I can't um, do anything with these. Like there has to be a purpose. And if I can't think ahead to what that purpose might be and then convince myself that I can actually succeed in that purpose years from now, somehow my brain goes to, then I don't even bother. I convince myself that it's not even worth it. And art should never be like that. Art, you know, creative things should never be like that. And I tell people that. I've told people that my whole life. Like, you should just create for yourself. But I've never really followed my own rules. I have art that I've created for a purpose. All of my art, almost all of it, I created for a purpose. I, did, I don't just draw to draw. I don't just paint to paint. And it's unfortunate to me because I do have a talent. I have a genuine talent for more of a draftsmanship style of artwork. I can spot design really well, but I'm not very good at it. Um, I see composition well. I have talent for this kind of stuff, for creating. And I've never really pursued it. I go in, it comes in waves. I, you know, I went after it for a little bit when I was tattooing and then I just kind of gave up. I just stopped. I went after it for a little bit in my past when I was doing coffee work and I was painting and I was drawing. And then I just kind of stopped, 
you know, when I was airbrushing, I always had a reason not to like, I mean, I pursued it as a career, but I didn't really try because that's the other aspect of my perfectionism. If I don't do a very good job, if I don't try hard, then I've never really failed. It's so weird. My, my thinking is so strange when it comes to this kind of stuff. If I don't really put a hundred percent in it and it doesn't work out, well then that's fine. That's proof that it's not going to work out and I'm not all in. So it's not a failure. It's not a full failure, which is just shitty. Like I have practiced that kind of thinking for so long that it's become the norm. It really has. So that's been something I have worked against in other aspects of my life. But my art is really one that I've just not really revisited and gone back to because now it's gotten to where it's like, well, I always start, but I never go anywhere with it. I never really pursue it. So why bother? Um, and so that's something that I'm going to be trying to change. It, and this reading really plays into that kind of concept. You know, what what things in your life are you are you kind of convincing yourself out of? You know, are you convincing yourself out of talking to some girl because, or some guy because you imagine how it's going to go. And so that rules your tongue, that rules your actions, this thing that doesn't exist because you haven't made that next step. Maybe it's a job that you're after. Maybe it's a book you're writing. Maybe it's whatever it is. What in your life are you dreaming up nightmare scenarios that you are convincing yourself are the only ways that it could go and then not pursuing it as a result of that. You know, how can we change that? Well, the, the most practical thing is to take it in small doses, push against those, those, you know, made up nightmares and see where it goes. And at worst, what happens if you're wrong? If you're already convinced that that's the answer, then, you know, it's it's not like it's a waste of time to try. If you already know it's not going to go anywhere, then it's there's no harm in doing it anyways. It's kind of where my brain's at. We'll, we'll see. So whatever it is that you're looking at, that you're that you're convinced is going to go poorly, do yourself a favor and try to try to look at other outcomes that could possibly come out of it, and try to focus on that. It really is easy to see things as failure in your mind and then make it so. Really easy. That's, that's been my experience anyways. Of course, out of all the steps, step 12 would have the most written for it, which makes sense. I mean, it is the linchpin of the entire program, essentially. So this episode might go a little longer. We'll see. There might not be as much for me to really kind of touch on. Um, who knows? I am a talkative fucking guy, so it's likely I'll have a lot to say. Step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This has always been to me, you know, you got to give it away if you're going to keep it. If you're going to stay sober, then the best way to practice this is to teach others, to show others. It's like that with anything, really. If you're if you're at a job, the best way to make sure that you understand your job after you've been there for a little while is to train someone else in it and to learn how to do it in a successful way. You know, if you're an artist or if you're a craftsman or you're in a trade, Again, that's the best way to solidify your position and, you know, not your position as far as like the company goes, but like solidify your abilities and solidify your knowledge is to give it away, to show other people, to teach other people. 
And it doesn't mean that you have to be a perf perfect at it. It just means that that's how you can learn it yourself further. You know, you're telling someone verbally something that you already know that maybe you haven't really said aloud before and you've only kind of thought it'll help help you work through it a way that's different than if you just silently do it to yourself. That's been my experience with this program. And that's what I do enjoy. That's part of it that I do enjoy. Being able to express the things that go on in my life and the way that I've changed and the things that I've learned in this program and, and outside of it and being able to share that with someone else in a way that can help them find their own path uh, is really exciting. And a lot of the ways that this program works is it, I don't think it would come from someone else, could come from someone else and be believable. I don't think somebody that's never had the struggles that I have could ever really tell me how to fix them. You know, a therapist can help to some extent. But there's aspects of this that are just going to need to come from somebody who's kind of walked in your own shoes. And that's the same with like, like ADHD. You know, when people who don't have ADHD try to tell me what to do to fix it, it's really fucking kind of irritating. Honestly, it's like, what the fuck could you possibly know about it? You know, you can't even tell me that you've implemented any of this stuff in your own life because this doesn't apply to you. The things that you would need to do to fix this won't apply to me. Like, it's just... You kind of need to hear it from the horse's mouth. And that's one thing I really do enjoy. You know, when I was doing prison in reach and I was working for with dudes that were coming out of the prison, you know, that was something that we learned is, you know, you can have visitors come in, you can have people from the outside come in and you can have inspirations come in. But the people that had the biggest impact were the ones that have been out for a little while and they came back in and they said, here's what I did. Here's how I did it. And they can lean into that. You know, even if there's like trust barrier problems and, and things like that, you still can lean into the idea that this, this is someone who's been here, even if it's not my own story, it's someone who can at least relate to the language I use. You know, they can relate to the experience in a way that nobody else could who hasn't been here. So that's what this step really means to me. That's what this process means to me. Reaching out the hand of the person that's still struggling in a way that isn't patronizing, isn't placating, isn't co-signing their bullshit. It's just saying, I know I've been there. I'm willing to walk this path with, path with you as long as you're willing to try. The joy of living is the theme of AA's 12 step and action is its key word. Here we turn outward toward our fellow alcoholics who are still in distress. Here we experience the kind of giving that asks no reward. Here we begin to practice all 12 steps of the program in our daily lives so that we and those about us may find emotional sobriety. When the 12 steps is seen in its full implication, it is really talking about the kind of love that has no price tag on it. Our 12th step also says that a result of practicing all the steps, we have each found something called a spiritual awakening. To new AAs, this often seems like a very dubious and implorable state of affairs. What do you mean when you talk about a spiritual awakening, they ask? I was just asked this, actually. Um, that, so for me, spirituality doesn't really have anything to do with metaphysical you know, implementations of anything, any, any elements that are outside of potential scientific exploration. What... I feel spiritual is, is a connection, a connective tissue between things like kind of a body, emotional feeling that you have when you see someone that means a lot to you, when you, you know, have a dog that shows you love, like these connections, you know, when you, when you see a kid that, you know, is having, uh, see a kid that, that overcomes some kind of an obstacle when you, when you watching a movie and you see an event that, you know, really touches you because you see someone come into their own and they, they overcome some obstacles. These things 
are for me my spirituality that's what i ask uh, a strive attribute spirituality to is this connectivity this consciousness of our emotional feelings that we have towards people and things and events that's my spirituality um, and so I tie that to this. So a spiritual awakening for me was when I started realizing that I was in control of my my emotional path. When I realized that I could affect my emotions by by working on my traumas, that I could change my attachment style, that I could alter the kind of person I am in a relationship. That was my spiritual awakening. When I knew that this was true, as long as I believed that it was true and now it became true, that's been my, my spiritual awakening. Um, I hope that makes sense and I hope that's something that people have been able to find for themselves. Maybe there are as many definitions of spiritual awakenings as there are people who have had them, but certainly each genuine one has something in common with all the others. And these things which they have in common are not too hard to understand. When a man or a woman has a spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is that he has now become able to do, feel, and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. He has been granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. He has been set on a path which tells him he is really going somewhere. That life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or mastered. In a very real sense, he has been transformed because he has laid hold of a source of strength which, in one way or another, he had hitherto denied himself. He finds himself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, and selfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he had thought himself quite incapable. What he has received is a free gift, and yet usually, at least in some small part, he has made himself ready to receive it. AA's manner of making ready to receive this gift lies in the practice of the 12 steps in our program. So let's consider briefly what we have been trying to do up to this point. Step 1 showed us an amazing paradox. We found that we were totally unable to be rid of the alcohol obsession until we first admitted that we were powerless over it. And for me, that's like a different thing, but I've already covered that. In step two, we saw that since we had not restored ourselves to sanity, some higher power must, necess must necessarily do it if we are to survive. And I, again, that's something I have major issue with. Uh, so I don't believe that that's necessary or true. Consequently, in step three, we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. For the time being, we who were atheists or agnostic discovered that our own group or a as a whole would suffice as a higher power. Eh, Beginning with step four, we commenced to search out the things in ourselves which had brought us to physical, moral, and spiritual bankruptcy. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory. Looking at step five, we decided that an inventory taken alone wouldn't be a lot enough. We knew we would have to quit the deadly business of living alone with our conflicts and in honesty confide these to God and to another human being. At step six, many of us balked for the practical reason that we did not wish to have our defects of character removed because we still love some of them too much, and I still love some of mine and I have kept them in some capacity. Yet we knew we had to make a, a sentiment with the fundamental principle of step six. So we decided that while we still had some flaws of character that we could not yet relinquish, we ought nevertheless to quit our stubborn, rebellious hanging on to them. We said to ourselves, this I cannot do today, perhaps, but I can stop crying out, no, never. And that's true. I've come to terms with the fact that some of my sense of humor has had to go over the years and I've worked on it because it's just been too abrasive or um, was more of me lashing out. And I'm not, if, if other aspects of my personality are doing the same, then I'm willing to change them. I just have come to a, a point where I know what I feel is still serving me. 
Then in step seven, we humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings, such as he could or would under the conditions of the day we asked. In step eight, we continued our house cleaning, for we saw that we were not only in conflict with ourselves, but also with people and situations in the world in which we lived. We had to begin to make our peace, and so we listed the people we had harmed and became willing to set things right. We followed this up in step nine by making direct amends to those concerned, except when it would injure them or other people. By this time, at step 10, we had begun to get a basis for daily living, and we keenly realized that we would need to continue taking personal inventory, and that when we were wrong, we ought to admit it promptly. In step 11, we saw that if a higher power had restored us to sanity and had enabled us to live with some peace of mind in a sorely troubled world, then such a higher power was worth knowing better by as direct contact as possible. The persistent use of meditation and prayer we found did open the channel so that where there had been a trickle, there now was a river which led to the power and safe guidance from God as we were increasingly better able to understand him uh, or something. So practicing these steps, we had a spiritual awakening about which finally there was no question. You know, it's stuff like this that's in the book that really kind of it bring it brings to attention why some people might feel like they're failing this program in some way or failing a program similar to it. When you put stuff like this where at this point you should have felt an obvious spiritual awakening, for anybody who hasn't, they're going to feel like they've, they've done something wrong, that they're missing something. And, and that's just really setting someone up for failure. That's setting someone up for the idea that there is a specific thing that you should be feeling by now. Looking at those who were only beginning and still doubt of themselves, the rest of us were able to see the change setting in. From great numbers of such experiences, we could predict that the doubter who still claimed that he hadn't got the spiritual angle and who still considered his well-loved AA group the higher power would presently love God and call him by name, and they can fuck off all the way and then fuck off some more with this language. This is where I've, this is like the, the, the hair that broke the camel's back for me. This is the, the last little bitty piece of straw, this kind of shit that it just keeps popping up. No. I am not doing anything wrong because I haven't found God. No, I shouldn't consider myself a newcomer or shouldn't continue to look at this program from the angle of a newcomer because I haven't found God. No, just because I have made it this far into the program doesn't mean that there's something wrong with my program because I haven't found God. No, you're not doing something wrong if as an atheist or an agnostic you haven't found your way to the voice and love of God and then call him by name or whatever bullshit this is. So irritating. That's exactly where we agnostics fucking came from, was that damn angle of, well, you know, you don't believe now, but you will. You just, and you only will if you do the program right. So you know you aren't doing the program right if you don't believe in God. Fuck all of that. Now, what about the rest of the 12 steps? The wonderful energy it releases in the anger action, the uh, eager action by which it carries our message to the next suffering alcoholic and which finally translates the 12 steps into action upon all our affairs is to pay off the magnificent reality of Alcoholics Anonymous. I do get a lot of energy from helping people find their way to some sort of recovery program. It's not divine. Even the newest of newcomers finds unredeemed, undreamed rewards as he tries to help his brother, brother alcoholic, the one who is even blinder than he. This is indeed the kind of giving that actually demands nothing. He does not expect his brother suffer to pay him or even to love him. And then he discovers that by the divine paradox of this kind of giving, he has found his own reward, whether his brother has yet received anything or not. 
His own character may still be gravely defective, but he somehow knows that God has enabled him to make a mighty beginning, and he senses that he stands at the edge of new mysteries, joys, and experiences of which he had never dreamed. The purposes of mentoring without reward, of helping people without reward, the feeling that it, it promotes within you is not divine. Practically every AA member declares that no satisfaction has been deeper and no joy greater than in a 12-step job well done. To watch the eyes of men and women open with wonder as they move from darkness into light, to see their lives quickly fill with new purpose and meaning, to see whole, whole families re reassembled, to see the alcoholic outcast received back into his community in full citizenship, and above all, to watch these people awaken to the presence of a loving God in their lives, these things are the substance of which we receive as we carry AA's message to the next alcoholic. Can you imagine being the person that just, while fighting recovery, just just had to like rebuild their life in a way that didn't reflect any of that. I didn't find my way back into a community that loves me and didn't find my way back into a community with full citizenship. I still can't get a fucking apartment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there's some jobs that I have to jump through 12 more hoops than anybody else to get. You know, like I'm glad I can get these jobs. The job I got now took two extra interviews and it took... <laughs> It took a whole bunch of fucking extra, uh, extra work to convince them that I'm no longer a threat, you know, even though it's been 22 years since I laid a hand on somebody. Um, but, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous didn't give me full uh, open arms embrace into fucking citizenship. <laughs> like, I didn't get my family back, you know, watch my mom die before I get, got sober. My dad's still out there doing whatever the fuck. You know, I guess my daughter, I could say that me and her talk now, but like I wasn't returned to anything. I built a new life, but none of what just was read reflects me. It's not, it's not reflective of me. And I just more, just more stuff that I feel like people, this was written from one angle. Anyways, nor is this the only kind of a of 12 step work. We sit in AA meetings and listen, not only to receive something ourselves, but to give the reassurance and support which our presence can bring. If our turn comes back to speak at a meeting, we again try to carry AA's message. Whether our audience is one or many, it is still 12 step work. There are many opportunities, even for those who, uh, those of us who feel unable to speak at meetings or who are so situated that we cannot do much face-to-face 12-step -face work. We can be the ones who take on the unspectacular but important tasks that make good 12-step work possible, perhaps arranging for the coffee and cake after the meetings, where so many skeptical, suspicious newcomers have found confidence and comfort in the la laughter and talk. This is 12-step work in the very best sense of the word. Freely ye have received, freely give, is the core of this part of 12 steps. So that, 100%, I will agree with all of that. The uh, the concept of there is no small there is no such thing as a small task um, to help kind of carry this message. I would say for anybody who is still considering going to AA meetings and finds use for those and finds that that's a helpful part of their recovery, your twelve step work can come in representing people that don't necessarily fall in line with this idea uh, of the benevolent God. You know, just make yourself available to people that might have questions about that and show that there is a better way uh, for you. That doesn't involve God, not a better way than other people, but a better way for you, you know, without the struggle of like, well, this doesn't fit my, my round peg doesn't fit in your square hole. Therefore I must be doing this wrong kind of an angle, you know, making, making more people feel comfortable and confident that they're in the right place. That's, that's how you can, you can reach that handout. Even if it's just to, to introduce yourself to somebody after a meeting, that's 12 step work. We may often pass through 12-step experiences where we will seem to be temporarily off the beam. These will appear as big setbacks at the time, 
but we will but will be seen later as stepping stones to better things. For example, we may set our hearts on getting a particular person sobered up, and after doing all we can for months, we see him relapse. Perhaps this will happen in a succession of cases, and we may be deeply discouraged as our as to our ability to carry AA's message. Or we may encounter the reverse situation, in which we are highly elated because we seem to have been successful. Here, the temptation is to become rather possessive of these newcomers. Perhaps we try to give them advice about their affairs, which we aren't really competent to give or ought not give at all. Then we are hurt and confused when the advice is rejected or when it is accepted and brings still greater confusion. By a great deal of ardent 12 steps work, we sometimes carry the message to so many alcoholics that they place us in a position of trust. They make us, let us say, the group's chairman. Here again, we are presented with the temptation to overmanage things, and sometimes these results in this results in rebuffs and other consequences, which are hard to take. I have seen people become possessive of their sponsees and matrily or patriarchally like rule them, and it's fucking weird. Don't do that. Please don't do that. It's creepy and it's it's kind of gross. Let people make their own decisions. You're just there to fucking guide. That's it. People shouldn't be like trying to decide through you what they should eat and where and how they should act and when they should get to work. You know, that's not that's not any of this. And I see it way too much. But in the longer run, we clearly clearly realize that these are the only pains of growing up and nothing but good can come from them if we turn more and more to the entire 12 steps for the answers. Now comes the biggest question yet. What about the practice of these principles in all our affairs? Can we love the whole pattern of living as eagerly as we do the small segment of of it we discover when we try to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety? Fucking sentence structures in this book, man. Can we bring the same spirit of love and tolerance into our sometimes deranged family lives that we bring to our AA group? Can we have the same kind of confidence and faith in these people who have been infected and sometimes crippled by our own uh, illness that we have in our sponsors? Can we actually carry the AA spirit into our daily work? Can we meet our newly recognized responsibilities to the world at large? Can we bring new purpose and devotion to the religion of our choice? Can we find a new joy of living and trying to do something about all these things? Uh, Yeah, you should definitely be carrying this message out to everybody, not necessarily trying to get everybody sober, but showing that you're not a piece of shit anymore. That's, That's a general principle. And, you know, if, if you're only going to the meeting and being nice, but you're an asshole everywhere else, it's no different than the person who goes to church and prays and then comes out and treats everybody around him like shit. Furthermore, how, sh- how shall we come to terms with seeming failure or success? Can we now accept and adjust to either without despair or pride? Can we accept poverty, sickness, loneliness, and bereavement with courage and, dis- and serenity? Can we steadfastly con- content ourselves with the humbler yet sometimes more durable satisfactions when the brighter, more glittering achievements are denied us? The AA answer to these questions about living is yes, all of these things are possible. We know this because we see monetary pain and even calamity turned to good use by those who keep on trying to practice AA's 12 steps. And if these are facts of life for the many alcoholics who have recovered in AA, they can become the facts of life for many more. Of course, all AAs, even the best, fall far short of such achievements as a consistent thing. It's so weird they reference AAs as a people, as a, as a person. It's very confusing for me sometimes. Without necessarily taking that first drink, we often get quite far off the beam. Our troubles sometimes begin with indifference. We are sober and happy in our AA work. Things go well at home and office. We naturally congratulate ourselves on what later proves to be far too easy and superficial point of view. We temporarily cease to grow because we feel satisfied that there is no need for all of AA's 12 steps for us. 
Again, fuck right off. We are doing fine on a few of them. Maybe we are doing fine on only two of them. The first step and that part of the 12th where we carry the message. In AA slang, that blissful state is known as two-stepping. And it can go on for years. Again, your, your recovery is invalidated because you're not doing it the way that I suggest you should be doing it. Uh, and therefore, you're only a matter of time away from being uh, a drunk again. No, maybe telling fucking people that is what leads them to feel like that they should start drinking because they're somehow now failing a program that can't be fucking failed unless you drink. <sighs> now, I will say that it is very common for people, especially myself, that when work the work leads to good, when the self-improvement and all the stuff leads to feeling good, it's very, very easy to rest on your loyals. It's very, very easy for me to stop doing the work. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine. And that's when the work should be like doubled down, when you feel good. Because if it's easy to do when it feels good, it'll be easier to do when it feels bad, when things are not going well. If it's the default setting, but scrambling around for answers on ways to feel better because shit finally heads south due to inaction while things are going good is not a very productive and healthy way of living life. The best intention of us can fall for the two-step illusion. Sooner or later, the pink cloud stage wears off and things go disappointingly dull. We begin to think that AA doesn't pay off after all. We begin, pu we become puzzled and discouraged. Yes, of course, if you're not actually doing any work, you're gonna you're gonna put yourself in a position where maybe you drink, maybe you do you slip into old thinking, maybe you you kind of re re you know default back to ways of living your life that weren't healthy that's obviously going to happen but that's going to happen regardless of if it's aa or not then perhaps life as it has a way of doing suddenly hands us a great big lump that we can't begin to swallow let alone digest we fail to get a worked for promotion we lose that good job maybe there are serious domestic or do, uh, romantic difficulties or per perhaps that boy we thought god was looking after becomes a military casualty yeah because god just fucking decided yep, not looking after you what then have we alcoholics in AA got or can we get the resources to meet these calamities which come to so many? These were problems of life which we could never face up to. Can we now, with the help of God, as we understand him, handle them as well and as bravely as our non-alcoholic friends often do? Can we transform these calamities into assets, sources of growth and comfort to ourselves and those about us? Well, we surely have a chance if we switch from two-stepping to 12-stepping, if we are willing to receive that grace of God which can sustain and strengthen us in any catastrophe. Our basic troubles are the same as everyone else's, but when an honest effort is made to practice these principles in all our affairs, well-granted AAs seem to have the ability, by graces, God's grace, to take these troubles in stride and turn them into demonstrations of faith. You don't need God's grace to um, stop acting a fool because things turn south. We have seen AAs suffer lingering and fatal illness with little complaint and often in good cheer probably not always the case. You're not doing anything wrong if you have a hard time with being fucking terminally ill. We have sometimes seen families broken apart by misunderstanding ten misunderstanding tensions or actual infidelity who are reunited by the AA way of life. Yes, you can still be an asshole as an AA member of AA or any recovery program. Though the earning power of most AAs is relatively high. We have some members who never seem to get on their feet money-wise, and still others who encounter heavy financial reverses. Ordinarily, we see these situations met with fortitude and faith. Like most people, we have found, like 
though the earning power of most AAs is relatively high? What the fuck even is that statement? How is that even possibly true? Like... <laughs> Like most of us, we have found that we can take our big lumps and they come, as they come. But also like others, we often discover a greater challenge in the lesser and more continuous problems of life. Our answer is in still more spiritual development. Only by this means can we improve our chances for really happy and useful living. And as we grow spiritually, we find that our old attitudes toward our instincts need to undergo drastic revisions. Our desires for emotional security and wealth, for personal prestige and power, for romance and for family satisfactions, all these have to be tempered and redirected. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. If we place instincts first, we have got the cart before the horse. We shall be pulled backward into disillusionment. But when we are willing to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have a real chance. After we come into AA, if we go on growing, our attitudes and actions towards security, emotional security, and financial security commence to change profoundly. Our demand for emotional security for our own way had constantly thrown us into unworkable re relations with other people. Though we were sometimes quite unconscious of this, the result always had been the same. Either we had tried to play God and dominate those about us, or we had ins insisted on being over-dependent upon them. Where people had temporarily led us, so that... Before I get too too far that's to me that's uh, more referencing like attachment styles avoidant uh, attachment style um, or anxious attachment style the idea is to move into a secure attachment style which is incredibly possible um, and a lot of the work that can be started here or for some continued here is is exactly that becoming independent in a reasonable way where people had temporarily let us run their lives as though they were still children we had felt very happy and secure ourselves but when they finally resisted or ran away we were bitterly hurt and disappointed we blamed them being quite unable to see that our unreasonable demands had been the cause when we had taken the opposite tact and had instead like infants ourselves that people protect and take care of us or that the world owed us a living then the result had been equally unfortunate. Man, he's just an awful writer. This often caused the people we had loved most to push us aside or perhaps desert us entirely. Our disillusionment had been hard to bear. We couldn't imagine people acting that way towards us. We failed to see that though adult in years, we were still behaving childishly, trying to turn everybody, friends, wives, husband, even the world itself into protective parents. We had refused to learn the very hard lesson that over-dependence upon people is unsuccessful because all people are fallible, and even the best of them will sometimes let us down, especially when our demands for attention became unreasonable. And it's exhausting. It is exhausting. Not just for you, if you're someone who has become over-dependent on other people, but for everybody around you, because there is never a, never a solving of that. I have a friend who I do my best to be there and be supportive of, but is just so absurdly obsessed with this idea that externally is the only way that they're going to feel loved and cared for. And that there is no amount in the world that could ever trump how they personally feel. They have, they are surrounded by people that show them love. They are surrounded by people that show them support, but it, it never meets the demands. It never satisfies those feelings. And so it's always cast aside. And then they're like, why don't people stick around? Well, because you've made it clear that no amount of effort on anybody else's part is going to ever make you feel better. And so therefore you invalidate every single bit of effort any friend makes for you. That's, that's so exhausting. 
as we had made as we made spiritual progress we saw through these fallacies we be, it became clear that if if we were if we ever were to feel emotionally secure among grown-up people we would have to put our lives on a give-take basis we would have to develop the sense of being in partnership or brotherhood with all those around us we saw that we would need to give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment what no no don't do that don't constantly give of yourself not constantly when we persistently did this, we gradually found that people were attracted to us as never before, and even if they failed us, we could be un understanding and not too seriously affected. When we developed still more, we discovered that the best possible source of emotional stability to be God himself. Uh, we found that dependence upon his perfect justice, forgiveness, and love was healthy, and that it would work where nothing else would. If we really depended upon God, we couldn't very well play God to our fellows, nor would we feel the urge wholly to rely on human protection and care. Now, remember, a uh, page or two ago it said, uh, your religion or your God as you understand him. Uh, and then here, once again, they define it for you. What if my God doesn't want to deal with that shit? What if my, my religion of choice doesn't find that putting your full dependence on God is healthy? What if my, what if my religion doesn't fucking have a God? <laughs> what if I'm Buddhist? Like what? It was, uh, these were the new attitudes that finally brought up many of us in inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity, not of our own making. Again, this sort of puts like a, a requirement on this. If you're unable to find a God that you can rely on in this way, even though it's any religion or any God that you understand him, then you're missing out. You're missing something. This is a component that could, that could cause you to drink yourself to death. You're missing out because you can't get past this hurdle that we've now put in front of you. This new outlook was, we learned, something especially necessary to us alcoholics. For alcohol, alcoholism had been a lonely business, even though we had been surrounded by people who loved us. But when self-will had driven everybody away, and our isolation had become complete, it caused us to play the big shot in cheap bar rooms and then fare forth alone on the street to depend upon the charity of passerby. We were still trying to find emotional security by being dominating or dependent upon others. Even when our fortunes had not ebbed that much and we nevertheless found ourselves alone in the world, we still vainly tried to be secure by some unhealthy kind of domination or dependence. For those of us who were still like that, AA had a very special meaning. Through it, we began to learn right relations with people who understood us, understand us. We don't have to be alone anymore. Most married folks in AA have been very have very happy homes. Why would you even suggest that? That might not be true at all. To a surprising extent, AA has offset the damage to family life brought about by years of alcoholism. But just like all other societies, we do have sex and marital problems, and sometimes they are distressingly acute. Permanent marriage breakups and separations, however, are unusual in AA. I don't think that's true at all. Our main problem is not how we are able to stay married. It is how to be more happily married by eliminating the severe emotional twists that have no uh, have so often stemmed from alcoholism. Nearly every sound human being experiences at some time in life a, compl a compelling desire to find a mate of the opposite sex with whom the fullest possible union can be made, spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. This mighty urge is the root of great human accomplishment, a creative energy that deeply influences our life. No, it's 100% societal. God, God fashioned us that way. 
Nope. So our question will be this. How, by ignorance, compulsion, and self-will, do we misuse this gift for our own destruction? We AAs cannot pretend to offer full answers to age-old perplexities, but our own experiences uh, experience does provide certain answers that work for us. And this is all going out to my polyfolk friends. This doesn't speak for you guys. It doesn't speak for people that uh, are asexual and maybe don't even find themselves interested in, in any kind of, uh, you know, sexual union or romantic partnership. I myself have come to terms with the fact that I'm perfectly okay with being alone right now. It could extend to the rest of my life if I don't find a partner that's not the end of the road for me. This is, this is again, this is not some sort of a failing. This mighty urge is the root of great human accomplishments. The urge to be in a relationship with someone is at the root of our great human accomplishments. What a fucking bizarre sentence. No, it's not. Good for you if you want to be in a relationship, but stop this weird compulsory shit that suggests that anybody who's not in a relationship is somehow missing out on the ability to have great human accomplishments. What in the fuck? When alcoholism strikes, very unnatural situations may develop which work against marriage, partnership, and compatible union. I gotta be honest, I'm having, I'm struggling. There's so fucking much more of this chapter. Jesus Christ. Ugh. I, this is like, he, he is just going fucking on and on. And a lot of this is just so unnecessary. D describing how people successfully should be, um, you know, following God and, and, and describing relationships as the only way to have human accomplishment. Fucking, ugh. If the man is affected, the wife must become the head of the house, often the brain, the breadwinner, uh, because, you know, it's the only way if it only only if the man is affected because, you know, households aren't fucking uh, split, I guess. As matters get worse, the husband becomes a sick and irresponsible child who needs to be looked after and extricated from endless scrapes and impasses. Very gradually and usually without any realization of the fact, the wife is forced to become the mother of an erring boy. And she had a strong maternal instinct to begin with. The situation is aggravated. Obviously, not much partnership can exist under these conditions. The wife usually goes on doing the best she knows how. But meanwhile, the alcoholic alternatively loves and hates her maternal care. A pattern is thereby established that may take a lot of undoing later on. Nevertheless, under the influence of AA's 12 steps, these situations are often set right. Oh, that's good. When the distraction has been great, however, a long period of patient striving may be necessary. After the husband joins AA, the wife may become discontented, even highly resentful that Alcoholics Anonymous has done the very thing that all her years of devotion had failed to do. Her husband may become so wrapped up in AA and his new friends that he is inconsiderably away from house more than when he drank. Seeing her unhappiness, he recommends AA's 12 steps and tries to teach her how to live, for fuck's sakes. She naturally feels that for years she has made a far better job of living than he has. Both of them blame each other and ask when their marriage is over, is ever going to be happy again. They may even begin to su suspect it had never been any good in the first place. Compatibility, of course, can be so impossibly damaged that a separation may be necessary. But those cases are the unusual ones. The alcoholic, realizing what his wife has endured and now fully understanding how much he himself did to damage her and his children, nearly always takes up his marriage responsibilities with a willingness to repair what he can and to accept what he can't. He persistently tries all of AA's 12 steps in his home, often with fine results. At this point, he firmly but lovingly commences to behave like a partner instead of like a, like a bad boy. And above all, he is finally convinced that reckless romancing is not a way of life for him. I don't know what to 
say about that? Like how oddly, oddly specific. AA has many single alcoholics who wish to marry and are in a position to do so. Some marry fellow AAs. How do they come out? On the whole, these marriages are very good ones. I can't imagine how they would know that. Their common suffering as drinkers, their common interest in AA and spiritual things often enhance such unions. It is only where boy meets girl on AA campus and love follows at first sight that difficulty can develop. The prospective partners need to be solid AAs and long enough acquainted to know that their compatibility at spiritual, mental, and emotional levels is a fact and not, not wishful thinking. They need to be as sure as possible that no deep-lying emotional handicap in either will be likely to rise up under later pressures to cripple them. The considerations are equally true and important for the AAs who marry outside AA. While clear understanding and right grown-up attitudes, very happy results do follow. And what can be said of many AA members who, for a variety of reasons, cannot have a family life? At first, many of them feel lonely, hurt, and left out as they witness so much domestic happiness about them. If they cannot have this kind of happiness, can AA offer them satisfactory uh, satisfactions of similar worth and durability? Yes, whenever they uh, try hard to seek them out. Surrounded by so many AA friends, these so-called loners tell us they no longer feel alone. In partnership with others, women and men, they can devote themselves to any number of ideas, people, and constructive projects. Free of marital responsibilities, they can participate in enterprises which would be denied to family, men, and women. We daily see such members render prodigies of service and receive great joys in return. Where the possession of money and material things was concerned, our outlook underwent the same revolutionary change. With a few exceptions, all of us have been spendthrifts. We threw money about in every direction with the purpose of pleasing ourselves and impressing other people. In our drinking time, we acted as if the money supply was inexhaustible, though between binges, we'd sometimes go to the other extreme and become mostly miserly. Without realizing it, we were just accumulating funds for the next spree. Money was a symbol of pleasure and self-importance. When our drinking had become much worse, money was only an ur urgent requirement which could supply us with the nest drink and the temporary comfort of oblivion it brought. This all meant, of course, that we were still far off balance. When a job still looked like a mere means of getting money rather than an opportunity for service, that's exactly what a job is, when the acquisition of money for financial independence looked more important than a right dependence upon God, you should seek finan financial independence. We were still the victims of unreasonable fears, and these were fears which would make a, a serene and useful existence, at any financial level, quite impossible. Though your identity should not be led by your money, but the fact that you are independent financially should be a healthy thing to, to strive for. But as time passed, we found that the help of AA's 12 steps, we could lose those fears no matter what our material prospects were. We could cheerfully perform humble labor without worrying about tomorrow. If our circumstances happened to be good, we no longer dreaded a change for the worse, for we had learned that these troubles could be turned into great values. It did not matter too much what our material condition was, but it did matter what our spiritual condition was. Money gradually became our servant and not our master. It became a means of exchanging love and service with those about us. When, with God's help, we calmly accepted our lot, then we found we could live at peace with ourselves and show others who still suffered the same fears that they could get over them too. We found that freedom from fear was more important than freedom from want. Let's here take note of our improved outlook upon the problems of personal importance, power, ambition, and leadership. These were reefs upon which many of us came to shipwreck during our drinking careers. Practically every boy in the United States dreams of becoming our president. He wants, he wants to be his country's number one man. As he gets, gets older and sees the impossibility of this, he can smile good-naturedly at his dreamhood dream, childhood dream. 
In later life, he finds that real happiness is not to be found in just trying to be a number one man or even a first raider in the heartbreaking struggle for money, romance, or self-importance. He learns that he can be content as long as he plays well whatever cards life deals him. Ugh. He's still ambitious, but not absurdly so, because he can now see and accept actual reality. He's willing to stay right size, but not so with alcoholics. When AA was quite young, a number of eminent psychologists and doctors made an exhaustive study of a good-sized group of so-called problem drinkers. The doctors weren't trying to find how different we were from one another. They sought to find whatever personality traits, if any, this group of alcoholics had in common. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that at this time, when they did this study, ADHD was not something or other neurodivergencies were not something that they studied. They finally came up with the conclusion that shocked the AA member of that time. These distinguished men had the nerve to say that most alcoholics under investigation were still childish, emotionally sensitive, and grandiose. How we alcoholics did resent that verdict. We would not believe that our adult dreams were often truly childish. And considering the rough deal life had given us, we felt it perfectly natural that we were sensitive. As to our grandiose behavior, we insisted that we had been possessed of nothing but a high and legitimate ambition to win the battle of life. I wonder if there was even a study. I wonder if he's even, if, if pressed, if at the time that he wrote this book, you could say what study was this, if he would even be able to tell you. In the years since, however, most of us have come to agree with those doctors. We have had a much keener look at ourselves and those about us. We have seen that we were prodded by unreasonable fears or anxieties into making a life business of winning fame, money, and what we thought was leadership. So false pride became the reverse side of that ruinous coin marked fear. We simply had to be number one pe people to cover up our deep-lying inferior inferiorities. In fitful successes, we boasted of greater feats to be done. In defeat, we were bitter. If we didn't have much of any worldly success, we became depressed and, co and cowed. Then people said we were of the inferior type. But now we see ourselves as chips off the old, same old block. At heart, we had been ab abnormally fearful. It mattered lither little fuck, whether we had sat on the shore of life drinking ourselves into forgetfulness or had plunged in recklessly and willfully uh, beyond our depth and ability. The result was the same. All of us had nearly perished in a sea of alcohol. But today, in well-natured AAs, these distorted drives have been restored to something like our true purpose and direction. We no longer strive to dominate or rule these those about us in order to gain self-importance. We no longer seek fame and honor in order to be praised. When we devoted service to family, friends, business, or community, we attract widespread affection and are sometimes singled out for posts of greater responsibility and trust. We try to be humbly grateful and ex exert ourselves the more in a spirit of love and service. True leadership, we find, depends upon able example and not upon vain displays of power or glory. Still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Not many of us can be leaders of prominence in order we wish to be. Service gladly rendered, obligations squarely met, troubles well accepted or solved with God's help, the knowledge that at home or in the world outside we are partners in the common effort, the well understood fact that in God's sight all human beings are important, the proof that love freely given surely brings a full return, the certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons, the surety that we need no longer be square pegs and round holes but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are the permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living for which no amount of pomp and circumstances, no heap of material possessions could possibly be substitutes. That was one sentence. Holy shit. Yes, absolutely. 
you should be satisfied with your life because you're not comparing it to others. That's all that's really saying, that huge, giant fucking sentence. As long as you're doing better, whatever that better might be for you, uh, and not and not choosing to compare yourself with everybody around you, you'll be successful and you'll feel successful. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. These little studies of AA's 12 steps now come to a close. We have been considering so many problems that it may appear that AA consists mainly of racking dilemmas and, pro and troubleshooting. To a certain extent, that is true. We have been talking about problems because we are problem people who have found a way up and out and who wish to share our knowledge of that way with all who, come, who can use it. For it is only by accepting and solving our problems that we can begin to get right with ourselves and with the world about us and with him who presides over us. Understanding is the key to right principles and attitudes, and right action is the key to give good living. Therefore, the joy of good living is the theme of AA's 12th step. With each passing day of our lives, may every one of us sense more deeply the inner meaning of AA's simple prayer. God grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. It's not AA's prayer. They stole it from someone. It's a very Christian prayer because it's written by a very Christian person. It's a good prayer, though. If you just scratch out the God part, it's still, still applicable. And it's still something that we should all be willing to say to ourselves. You know, just, you know, hey, just need, I just need a second here to uh, collect my shit, understand that stuff that's outside of my control isn't stuff I should try to control, and move forward. Man, that was a doozy. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into reading that um, step. There's a lot in there that's just fucked up, I, I obviously. I mean, really, just... Maybe it's because I have the perspective right now of, of really seeing the parts that I just can no longer even stomach that made some of that just barely fucking, you know, bearable. I don't know. But the long and the short of it is, at this point, you you should be in a position where you can make the decision on if you want to continue to work AA's program, if you want to supplement it with other aspects of different programs, or if you want to move away from AA entirely. That's where I'm at with it. Tradition 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I think this is the uh, the one of the most ignored traditions in all of AA. Um, the idea of placing principles before personalities should be 100% across the board. If people were actually doing that, there would never be drama in meetings. There just simply wouldn't. But the fact that there's always drama in meeting halls, that there's always some sort of fucking argument. You go on TikTok and you go into recovery groups on TikTok and there's constantly shit talking and drama. Constantly. Constantly. Then you would know that they're just completely fucking disregarding principles before personalities. Everybody's living within their personalities and everybody's working really hard in those fucking spaces to let everybody else know how their principles are fucked. And it's all just a matter of worry about your own shit. Worry about your own shit. If someone's causing you harm, dip, leave, bounce, forego that. If someone is causing harm, you know, maybe speak up if it's in a way that suggests that they shouldn't cause harm anymore. But these attack people attacking each other and people calling each other names and people calling each other out and people causing all these this this just bullshit. This is old behavior. A lot of it is just old behavior. And it is very specific to some recovery circles. What kind of drama is always being collected and a lot of it is so much revolving around the same kind of shit they were probably doing when they were using or drinking so just fucking that's what this is saying man just worry about your own shit worry about the program 
focus on the program. Don't bring your own personal shit into the program. The spiritual substance of anonymity is sacrifice. Because AA's 12-step traditions repeatedly ask us to give up personal desires of the common good, we realize that the sacrificial spirit, well symbolized by anonymity, is the foundation of them all. It is AA's proved willingness to make these sacrifices that gives people their high confidence in our future. But in the beginning, anonymity was not born of confidence. It was the child of our early fears. Our first nameless groups of alcoholics were secret societies. New prospects could find us only through a few trusted friends. The bare hint of publicity, even for our work, shocked us. Though ex-drinkers, we still thought it had, it had to hide from public distrust and contempt. When the big book appeared in 1939, we called it Alcoholics Anonymous. Its forward made this revealing statement. It is important that we remain anonymous because we are few, too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal appeals which may result from this publication. Being mostly business or professional folk, we could not well carry our occupations in such an event. Between these lines, it is easy to read our fear that large numbers of incoming people might break our anonymity wide open. As the AA groups multiplied, so did anonymity problems. Enthusiastic over the, the spectacular recovery of a brother alcoholic, we'd sometimes discuss those intimate and harrowing aspects of his case meant for his sponsor's ear alone. The aggrieved victim. If you're a fucking sponsor and you share any aspect of someone else's recovery with another person, get fucked. 100% get fucked. If you're gossiping about one of your sponsees to another person, get fucked. I don't care if you think that they're going to keep your secret. Don't fucking do it. Just don't. And, and if you find that you're still in a headspace where you think it's appropriate to take someone who's struggling, take their story and tell it to someone else without permission, then you are not meant to be a sponsor right now. And you should probably reconsider the direction that your recovery is going. And why am I being so vehement about that? Because it happens so much. I have had to tell people to know no, you are not going to tell me what your sponsor said, what your sponsee said. Now, if they want to share what their sponsor told them they should do with the bullshit they're working on, that's different. But if you're sharing someone else's story and you're sharing the details of those stories as, a, as some fucked up weird form of gossip, then I don't even, I don't even know what to, where to start, but it's not going to go well. <laughs> don't fucking bring it to me. Uh, and, and yeah, and if you could kindly get fucked. The aggrieved victim would then rightly declare that his tr trust had been broken. When such stories go into circulation outside of AA, the loss of confidence in our anonymity promise was severe. It frequently turned people from us. Clearly, every AA member's name and story, too, had to be confidential if he wished. This was our first lesson in the practical application of anonymity. With characteristic impertinence, however, some of our newcomers cared not at all for secrecy. I don't. They wanted to shout AA from the housetops and did. Alcoholics barely dry rushed out uh, bright-eyed, buttonholing anyone who would listen to their stories. Others hurried to place themselves before microphones and cameras. Sometimes they got distressingly drunk and let their groups down with a bang. There's, you're not letting a group down if you drink. They had changed from AA members into AA show-offs. This phenomenon of... This is exactly where it's coming from. It's like protect the program by not... You, we don't want you out there suggesting you're a member of AA because you might drink. This phenomenon of contrast really set us thinking. Squarely before us was a question, how anonymous should an AA member be? Our growth made it plain that we couldn't be a secret society, but it was equally plain that we wouldn't be a vaudeville circus act either. The charting off uh, the chart the charting of a safe path between these extremes took a long time. 
As a rule, the average newcomer wanted his family to know immediately what he was trying to do. He also wanted to tell others who had tried to help him, his doctor, his minister, and close friends. As he gained confidence, he felt it right to explain his new way of life to his employer and business associates. When opportunities to be helpful came along, he found he could talk easily about AA to almost anyone. These quiet disclosures helped him to lose his fear of the alcoholic stigma and spread the news of AA's existence in his community. Many a new man and woman came to AA because of such conversations. Though not in the strict letter of anonymity, such communications were well within its spirit. Yes, I recover out loud. I let people, I let most everybody that I know, know that at the very least I don't drink. They ask questions, I answer them. If they become rude and belligerent about it, I try reasonably to talk to them in a way that suggests that I understand that the reason why they're acting that way is probably because they have an issue with it. And if they have an issue with the fact that I'm not drinking, then they have an issue with their own. But it became apparent that the word of mouth method was too limited. Our work as such needed to be publicized. DAA groups would have to reach quickly as many despairing alcoholics as they could. Consequently, many groups began to hold meetings which were open to interested friends and the public so that the average citizens could see for them himself just what AA was all about. The response to these meetings was warmly sympathetic. Soon, groups began to receive requests for AA speakers to appear before civic organizations, church groups, and medical societies. Provided anonymity was maintained on these platforms and reporters present were cautioned against the use of names or pictures, the result was fine. Then came our very our first few excursions into major, major publicity, which were break, breathtaking. Cleveland's Plain Dealer articles about us ran that town's membership from a few into hundreds overnight. The news stories of Mr. Rockefeller's Dinner for Alcoholics Anonymous helped double our total membership in a year's time. Jack Alexander's famous Saturday Evening Post piece made AA a national institute. Such tributes as these brought opportunities for still more recognition. Other newspapers and magazines wanted AA stories. Film companies wanted to photograph us. Radio and finally television besieged us with requests for appearances. What should we do? At this tide offering, top public approval swept in. We realized that it could do us incalculable good or great harm. Everything would depend upon how it was channeled. We simply couldn't afford to take the chance of letting self-appointed members present themselves as messiahs representing AA before the whole public. The promoter instinct in us might be our undoing. If even one publicly got drunk or was lured into using AA's name for his own purposes, the damage might be irreparable. Are you fucking kidding me? If even one person showed that they were human, then it could fuck us. At this altitude, press, radio, films, and television, anonymity, 100% anonymity, was the only possible answer. Here, principles would have to come before personalities without exception. These experiences taught us that anonymity is real humi humility at work. It is an all-pervading spiritual quality which today keynotes AA life everywhere. Moved by the spirit of anonymity, we try to give up our natural desires for personal distinction as AA members, both among fellow alcoholics and before the general public. As we lay aside these very human aspirations, we believe that each of us takes part in the weaving of a perfect, protective mantle which covers our whole society and under which we may grow and work in unity. We are sure that humility expressed by anonymity is the greatest safeguard that Alcoholics Anonymous can ever have. And that's it. That's the podcast. I did it. I made it through some really fucking weird chapters of a set of books that I think absolutely 100% need to be rewritten. And for a lot of purposes, serve no purpose. Yes, there's a lot of good information in there, but you're, let's face it, recovery's not in there. 
the the words of recovery are, but the recovery, sobriety, finding your path, that's all inside you. That's all you. It's always been all you. And all this program does is offer one of many possible paths. I highly recommend people check out Dharma Recovery. Uh, I highly recommend people check out Smart Smart Recovery. I highly recommend people check out Life Ring. I highly recommend people look into therapy if affordable and possible. I highly recommend people look at their diet because a lot of that has to do with how your mood is stabilized. I highly recommend you look at the people that you associate with. I highly recommend that you just look inward more than you look outward and find that all of this has always been within us. All this book was was just someone finding a path that he felt others could could live by. And it was picked up by by a bunch of people that felt the same way. But every single member in AA works their own program the way they think they should. Sometimes it's extremely flawed. Sometimes it's extremely successful. Not a single one of those programs looks the same because it doesn't have anything to do with them. Those are just tools. All of this is just tools. Find your tools. Fill your toolbox. Find your path. That's it. It's, that's the podcast. That's the fucking moral of the story. If, if that means continuing to go to AA meetings and working a program that is AA specific and never expanding beyond that, if it brings you peace and it's your form of recovery that works for you, fucking fantastic. Fantastic. If you ever find yourself telling other people that they're doing recovery wrong because it doesn't reflect upon yours in a way that you approve, fuck off. <laughs> that's that's the podcast. Like, that's it. Do your own shit. Help others find their path. Be kind to people. Fucking, that's the, it's so simple, honestly. The, the work isn't. The constant work is not. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's putting myself in very uncomfortable situations. I'm going to put myself in an uncomfortable situation tonight. I'm going to go to a party where I know no one and I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to play some games. I'm going to watch other people make make fools out of themselves. Um, Some people are going to drink. Some people don't drink. And I'm just going to be a normal person at a party. I'm very, very nervous about this situation. But I can honestly look at myself and say that I have been doing the work on myself. I have found my recovery inside myself. I have changed my relationship with alcohol and with drinking, and I have changed the relationship I have with the world around me in a way that makes it so that I can go and do this thing and it'll be okay. That makes it so I can take risks in life and it'll be okay. That makes it so when shit does not go my way, it'll be okay. It has nothing to do with the program. It has nothing to do with uh, how how much better I'm doing this shit than other people it has nothing to do with pointing out to someone else that they could probably recover better if they did it my way. None of that is a fucking factor. So just do your own shit, man. Find your own path and just know that there is a lot of options and a lot of ways of looking at this, not just mine, not just yours, that can help you find your path. But again, at the end of the day, it's all it's all in you. It's all within you, period. Bill Wilson's not going to give it to you. God's not going to come down from heaven and be like, boom, bitch, I am sparking you with the life of recovery. It's not It's not waiting for you to beg a specific way. There's no, like, secret message. Just fucking focus and find your own path, man. That's it. Um, I appreciate everybody who's continued to listen. I appreciate everybody who has found something useful out of this podcast. 
Um, I appreciate any newcomers who might find this years down the road. This is February 12th, 2022 is when I'm actually recording this. Uh, I appreciate everybody who's given me feedback, everybody who's reached out, everybody who's had a conversation with me because of this. I appreciate everybody helping me stay sober by continuing to listen. Um, I appreciate that some of you are not going to be really excited about the fact that this is going to be the last episode, and I can appreciate the fact that, you know, that's not going to stop it from being the last episode. Thank you, uh, and um, maybe until next time.